Amen. You were standing on the promises, now you can sit on the premises. <laughs> as long as we do more standing than sitting, you know, it should be a weighted on that side of things. Great to sing these glorious hymns. And to remember God's goodness as we come together and continue uh, what we started last week. I don't know uh, about you, but this load shedding is really, it's a bit much now, eh? And now City Power, it seems, has joined the fray. And now not only do we get one block of load shedding in the evening, but two. Are you, have you been that lucky? Get the jackpot? You know, they just play with you, flick the lights on, <laughs> and then three, I see a hand, three. Yeah, so we're in crisis here, and the frustration is growing. One of the big problems I face, first world problem, is looking for my socks in the dark. <laughs> you know, all my socks are black, but they're not all, this, they're not all created equal. And to find the right socks in the dark, yeah, I know you get a torch, but it's, you just think it's just there in the drawer. I mean, it's there. How hard can this be? Turns out it's very difficult without a torch to make sense of what's going on. And it seems to me, in the world in which we live, and the world in which Paul lived 2,000 years ago, we know people in the darkness, but the truth is not far away from them. The truth is within their reach. Paul says so in the passage in Acts 17. Jesus, in fact, is right under people's noses. He's not far away. Not at all. But the darkness of the human heart without the Holy Spirit is so dark that they can't see Jesus even though he's right there. We find this when we witness to people, when we tell people about Jesus. We share about our lives and we maybe give some explanation about what's true and what's not and why we believe in Christ and his gospel in the church. You can talk to people and you know the lights, excuse the pun again, but the lights are on, but nobody's at home. You know? When I talk to my Jewish friends, I'd be as blunt as I can, not in a rude way, but as clear with the gospel about Jesus, that he's their Messiah. And it just goes, looking for socks in the dark, right under my nose, right under their noses. But it takes the Holy Spirit, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, to shine that light in our hearts. So the light is in eternal, and then we look and we see. I remember having the privilege of leading a lady to Christ in her later years. I met her through the tragic loss, the death of her husband. But she came to know Christ through his death and found out about the death of Christ for her. And she just bubbled with the love of Jesus. And she said to me, you know, there's some things that people say that you try to forget as soon as possible. There's other things that, that people say that just stay with you for your whole life. She said to me, I've been in church all my life. Why has no one ever explained what you just told me? Right under her nose. So close. And yet so far. Well, that's a predicament. That's a condition of people living with us and around us. Family, friends, colleagues, neighbors. And Acts 17 is the perfect 
template, if we can understand what's going on in Acts 17, as we started reading from verse 16, if we can begin to understand this and sort of deconstruct it to put it back together again so we understand the parts and the components, we will get it right. We will get it right. And we'll be more effective and faithful in sharing the gospel. I've got a subtitle for today's message, Shining the Light in the Midst of Spiritual Load Shedding. It's part two, continuation. Shining the Light in the Midst of Spiritual Load Shedding. So just to recap, well, let me read the text and then we will, we will recap. Let's go, we'll pick it up from verse 22. Paul has been in the marketplace, in the synagogue, he's been talking about Jesus. People have heard, people have been agitated, people have been sort of provoked, positively and negatively. And he ends up before this great council in Athens, this learned council of sophisticated intellectual people, making comprised of two main schools of thought, philosophical beliefs, the Stoics and the Epicureans. We're going to unpack a little bit about that so that we can understand who he's speaking to and why he's speaking the way he is. And this, you, they live amongst us today, folks, the Epicureans and the Stoics. They do. They might use different labels, different terms, but the philosophies of the Epicureans and the Stoics are alive and well. Just the other day, I had a friend telling me about Marcus Aurelius. He was a Stoic, and this is what he said. If you go online, you'll see a lot of quotes by the Stoics. Um, interesting, people quote Socrates and Aristotle. We know very little about Socrates and Aristotle. Uh, we know, well, we know more about Aristotle, but less about Socrates and Plato. Um, but people quote them like they, they're a neighbor. But when you tell them about Jesus, then they want to doubt the historicity of Jesus. You know? It's wonderful. Mind boggles. Anyway, let's pick it up from verse 22. Paul stands in front of this august group who are looking down at him. They call him a, this gutter snipe, this babbler. And he stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown. I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men uh, every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. You've got to feel sorry for the Eskimos, but there they are. God did this so that men would seek him. Very important in this context. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out to him for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. We are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. 
But now he commands all people everywhere. You know what that means? All people everywhere. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Our Lord Jesus Christ. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, mocked, jeered. But others said, hmm, we want to hear you again on this subject. Which could be a nice way of telling people someone to get lost, you know. At that, Paul left the council. Mission accomplished. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, Damaris, and a number of others. Shining the light, the light of the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of spiritual load shedding. We started looking last week at the, at the high points of the message and what Paul is doing is proclaiming Jesus as superior as exalted, as unique, completely transcendent, but at the same time very near and very close. And so he makes a statement, and we saw last week, verse 24, God is great. God is great. The God of Scripture, the God of the Bible is great. And when we say this, we're not making God great. When we praise God, or when we bless God, when we acknowledge God, we're not giving Him honor that is not already His. We're just acknowledging that all the glory, all the honor, all the majesty, all the praise, all the splendor, all the power belongs to Him. And then, in, in contrast again to the capricious, arbitrary, distant gods of the Greco-Roman world, the pantheon of gods, who were, you know, they were part God, part divine, part human, but they had more weaknesses, it seems, than humans themselves, and, and they didn't really care. Certainly the, the philosophies of Stoicism and Epicureanism have a similar view of God, that God, if there is a God, so there's, it's agnosticism, the God you don't know, the unknown God, they have a view of God, but if... If he's there, or it's there, or whoever's there, have you heard the, the higher power sort of terminology? Or the great architect of the universe, as Masons call the God they acknowledge, which is not the God of the Bible. If he's there, he doesn't care about us anyway. So live fast, die young, have a good-looking corpse. Or the one who dies with all the toys wins. You know, that's the philosophy of our day. But the God of the Bible is good. And we saw last week when we came around the communion table that the, the bread and the cup remind us of the absolute goodness of God. He's good in all his ways. And he gives himself as our sacrifice, as the payment that we could never pay. So while there's a lot of evil in the world, a lot of 
violence. And people say, how could God, if there was a God, how, why doesn't he stop this? He, where is he? He, is, he's, he died on the cross. He's opened the way into his very presence. He's given us hope and life and a perspective beyond the tangible, beyond the temporary. He is very God of very gods. He's the ruler of all rulers, king of kings and lord of lords. These are biblical descriptions of the God of creation, the God of scripture, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he is, unlike any other ruler, God, deity. You know, I, I feel so sorry, seriously. It's not pity, it's deep compassion and heartbreak for people who are so religious. But it's a man-made religion. I, I don't have hatred for people. Only when they wear a rugby jersey that's not green and gold. But, but we should never hate people. I saw, I saw these youngish men yesterday, clearly Muslims, with these massive big beards. You know, handsome beards, I can tell you. I mean, you know, I keep mine nice and short. I'm trying to show my colleague what a beard should look like, you know. <laughs> so, that, so that he's not confused with a Taliban. Uh, at any stage, you know. I'd hate that to happen. Uh, but, and, and then we had a Hindu family that just moved in the complex next to us, um, and they would do all their things, you know, their, their, those little tiny symbols that, I think an angle grinder sounds nicer than that thing. These people are really committed, but they're going to a crisis eternity. And they have no hope. They have no promise. Without hope, without God, in the world, as Ephesians 2 says. What a joy, what a privilege. And as Dr. J. Smith says, come home. Come home to Jesus. Come home to Jesus. He's good. And if you want a great God that you don't have to kill people for, if you want a great God, look at the cross because the great God died for us. He doesn't expect us to kill anyone. He died for us. So God is essentially good. And he's objective goodness. He's not subjective. It's not it, it this is the problem people have with God because they we've got these definitions of good that you know are all over the place. I said to a Jewish friend yesterday, if you really want to know what Christianity is about we were at the back of the group running very slowly, so I was witnessing to him again. I said, just read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you want to know what Christianity is about, if you want to know the nut, the essence, the kernel of the, of the message of God and the gospel and the whole of the Bible from the very mouth of Jesus Christ himself, just read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Encourage people to read it, whether they're believers, unbelievers, whatever faith they belong to. I can promise you in their, in their sacred, so-called sacred writings, they will never encounter something as majestic, as comprehensive, as clear, and as concise as the Sermon on the Mount. There's just no way. And do yourself a favor. Become very familiar with those three chapters. And if you commit to become familiar in the best possible way to those three chapters, teaching from the mouth of Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, the manifesto of the kingdom of God, 
much of Scripture will begin to make more sense to you because God reveals himself. Oh, I said to my friend, you know, God, Jesus says if you, if your son asks for bread, you're not going to give him a stone. If your child asks for a fish, you're not going to give him a serpent. Oh, it's so wonderful to share this with him yesterday. Jesus says, you are wicked. You're wicked parents, but you want good things for your children. How much more? How much more does your heavenly Father want good things for those who love him? Doesn't look like you believe any of what I'm saying. Are you, you're right this morning. I don't want to know what you're doing last night, but I just hope you're okay. All right, so then we move on to further into this address, to this message, to this phenomenal sermon. And we picked it up in verse 26. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined in his wisdom, in his goodness, in his greatness, he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. You know, yes, people migrate, people move around the world. It's fascinating to even have a cursory, a superficial understanding of, of human movement and demographics. And how did people end up where they ended up? I mean, how the heck do you end up in Greenland or Iceland, you know? Or Australia. Oh, we know how you end up in Australia. You had to be a convict. Um, but, you know, how do people end up where they are? They're just this random movement of, no, God determines. God determines where every one should live, because he's in control. So going on with my alliteration using G's, we're going to acknowledge here that God is the governor. Governor, ruler, king. He is the governor. Remember somebody was called the governor? When Arnold Schwarzenegger became governor of California? only in California. But uh, one of the best presidents America ever had, Ronald Reagan was an actor uh, as well, before he became a politician. But see, all of these, isn't it fascinating the titles people give themselves? You know, Idi Amin. The, Idi Amin, that a field marshal, most supreme ruler of some tin can, little tin pot nation. Uh, I hope they've recovered from that mess. What a mess. What about Mussolini? You see pictures, of, you see footage of Mussolini, you know, in, in black and white, and he's standing like, he was like five foot nothing, you know, but he's a nut job. Absolute nut job. Hitler, Heil Hitler. Heil Caesar, Hail Caesar. Caesar is Lord. That's where the Christians had a problem. Because <laughs> Jesus is Lord. But everybody scrambles for titles, you know. Do you know who I am? Oh. It's so important to us what people call us, you know. What's most embarrassing is this title, Reverend. What would be the most embarrassing title in the world? And then, if that's not bad enough, if that's, and that's officially what I, I don't use it, but 
If that's not bad enough, then you get the most reverend. <laughs> and the right reverend. Like, like, well, reverend's bad enough. You know, you know what reverend means? Worthy of reverence. You know somebody like that? The most reverend, the right reverend. Me and my friend, uh, both Gavins, both pastors, we, we call ourselves the irreverence. That's far more, far more appropriate, the irreverence. God is the governor. There's one head, there's one ruler, there's one king, and he's not about to, you know, to step off his throne, to abdicate, to be assassinated. The, the Don, you know, the Godfather, the boss. You know how those guys got to their positions of power? By killing the guy who was there ahead of them. But that, that, that's the same way that guy got there. You know? There's only one undisputed ruler. That's God. He is the governor. He's eternal, undisputed. It's not Rome. It's not Russia. It's not America. It's not China. It's only Jesus. And it's very important that Paul makes this very clear in this message because Athens, when he gets there, when we get to Athens with Paul in Acts 17, he comes to a city that was past its peak. It, it was, you know, it, was, it had a great history, a great story. Wow, Areopagus. That's what, these intellectuals sit and do nothing else but listen to the newest ideas. Oh, you're in front of this august people. Whoa, no. There's no fear in Paul because he only fears God. If you want to make sure that nobody can rule or run your life with fear, because that's what pe people use, guilt and fear, like no one's business. <coughs> guilt and fear and shame. Fear God, Scripture says. Fear God, honor the king. If we fear God, and that's a reverent worship, Siddler Baxter put it so well, Holy familiarity. Do those words even fit together? But that's such a beautiful description. It means to reverence, to revere God. A holy familiarity. He's standing in, in this amazing place with all these people with their fancy robes and their degrees and all this stuff. But they know better than anybody We've hit the top of that bell curve. We're, we're kind of we're on the decline. We don't want to admit it, you know. It's like the Titanic, you know. We're sinking, but we don't want to admit it. And in the light of this, they're trying to prop up the importance of their city and their position and their council. Paul blasts in with the truth that the God that I'm speaking, who was unknown to you is the one who's in charge. He made, he gives us life and breath and everything else. These gods you worship, you have to feed them. You have to clean them. You know, you know what's so funny about statues? I don't believe in knocking them down. I like history. But the funny thing about statues, it's just a very elaborate, very sophisticated toilet for a pigeon. <laughs> is it not? Is it not? See, the pigeons don't care if it's Madiba or 
Cecil John Rhodes or Jan Smuts or Paul Kruger or Rocky, exactly. It's just a toilet for them. Don't you love that? That's like God's commentary on statues and people propping them up. And that's all it is. You have to clean these things because the birds keep defecating on them. What kind of God is that? What kind of God is that? Every empire, and just do a summary of history, every empire, and there have been great and majestic empires since the beginning of time. The first one was going to be Babel. And God's, God told us you know, very clearly what he thinks about human empires. But we didn't learn much from Babel, did we? Now we got Dubai that's apparently sinking. Well, you know, Jesus said, by the way, did you know that all these storms in the middle in Saudi Arabia and stuff, there, there, there's sewage in the Kaaba, which is where it belongs. And that's all it is. That's all it's good for. It's an outhouse, nothing else. Uh, you know, built this massive thing in the desert. Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, don't build on sand. But no, we got a better idea. And surprise, surprise, when the thousand-year flood comes along in the desert, guess what happens? Exactly what Jesus said will happen. Surprise, surprise. Every empire collapses. Every single empire collapses. And usually, it collapses from within. Study history. Study the Persian Empire, Syrian Empire, Babylonian Empire. Third Reich. Every empire, communism. Why? Where? You know, I, I'll never forget actually seeing the the footage when it happened. People chopping walls, uh, chunks of uh, wall out of the Berlin Wall. How the heck were they able to do that? Where are the guards? If you see the early footage when they started building the wall, people are trying to escape over the barbed wire and the barriers and they would just get shot in cold blood. Where were those people who were ordered to shoot on sight? Anybody who tries to get out. You know, East Germany was such a great, this is another thing about these places like Tajikistan. And they're such great countries, people are dying to get out. I mean, that's all you need to know as a tourist, you know. Are people dying to get in or are they dying to get out? But where were the guys that were shooting these people? How could they get on top of the wall with sledgehammers and picks and chip out pieces? Because communism had collapsed. The stronghold of communism had collapsed, and then the wall was, just became souvenirs. See how it works. It always collapses from within. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we tear down every stronghold that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ. They always collapse from within. But God, he's in charge. And when God comes in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to announce, to declare, to demonstrate, to inaugurate all these beautiful words, the kingdom of God, which is what he does in the, pardon me, in the Sermon on the Mount, the manifesto of the kingdom of God. And when he conducts his earthly ministry and preaches his message, he is preaching a message that is very counterintuitive to mankind and to human powers and human governments. He, Jesus says, the change happens in the heart. 
You don't impose change on people. That's another problem with these totalitarian governments. They, they impose compliance and obedience on people. But you can't change the heart. You can't change the heart. Only God can change the heart. And so Jesus comes, and in his message, what he's called, you've heard it said. He quotes the law of Moses. You've heard it said, you shall not kill. Ten commandments. But I say to you, what's he doing there? But I say to you, he's actually, he says later in the same message, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But I say to you, that if you hate your brother in your heart, you've committed murder. Friends, I have to admit that I'm a serial murderer in that case. And you're not? You've never hated anyone? You know, if we took Jesus literally, if your eye offends you, pluck it out, if your hand offends you, we'd all be blind quadriplegics. All of us. But lopping off my hand or plucking out my eye is not going to change my heart. Jesus is making a radical declaration. The heart has to change. The heart has to be transformed. It has to be renewed. I say, do not commit. You've heard it said, do not, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, they knew what he was saying. The Pharisees listening to this message were apoplectic because they knew what he was doing. They knew what he was declaring. He was declaring to be greater than Moses. He's declaring to be the fulfillment of the law of God. The lawgiver, not just the fulfillment, but the giver of that law. He's the one that Moses met on the mountain, on Mount Sinai. He's the one the high priest would encounter in the Holy of Holies on one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. If you look at a woman lustfully, You've committed adultery in your heart. He goes for the heart. That's the message of the kingdom. And it's so subversive when you think about it. It's so subversive. Because it doesn't come in guns blazing, waving flags, shouting stupid slogans. The Holy Spirit creeps into the hearts of people. And the change begins to radiate outwards. Let me recommend another book to your book I've recommended before. The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. Great godly man is with Jesus now. But The Divine Conspiracy, if you don't understand most of it, just go to chapter 9 and read the law from chapter 9 at the end. But if it takes your life to understand that, keep reading it. I've only read it like one and a half times so far. But it's based on the Sermon on the Mount. And more accessible, if perhaps uh, Charles Swindoll's Simple Faith, Simple Faith, also based on the Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom is the way, and God is the governor. He's the king. And the kingdom is the way because Jesus is the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Remember that as Paul preaches this, as a devout lover of Jesus, as an ex-Pharisee who would have memorized as a child the five books of Moses, 
Imagine the abhorrence and the violent hatred he had, not towards the people of Athens, but towards the idolatry. But he didn't pick it. He didn't protest. He certainly didn't kill or hurt anyone. But he engaged with them wherever they happened to be, in the marketplace, in the synagogue. God is the governor. He's the ruler. And if we honestly believe this, if we honestly believe this, we will not be afraid. You don't have to live in fear. I promise you, you don't have to live in fear of anything or anyone. How much of our lives are ruled with fear? Anxiety. If we really believe God is the governor, fear will be a thing of the past. Friends, you don't have to live in fear. God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. And then as he brings this message to a close, God is great, God is good, God is the governor. He says God is grace. Not just God is full of grace, but God is grace. God is the goodness of God in human flesh. God is the savior God is all grace. He's the definition of grace. This undeserved gift of God. For it's by grace you're saved, not of works. This is not of yourselves, so that no man can boast. In the past, look at verse 30, in the past. Remember, this was 2,000 years ago. So how past the past are we in terms of God's declaration? in terms of God's declaration. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Do you realize he's standing in the middle of a university surrounded by professors and academics and intellectuals and he's calling them ignorant? That takes some doing. But he's telling them the truth. He's laying down the smack. In the past, God overlooked such such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, do a 180, change your heart, your mind, your direction in life, your thinking, your passions, your pleasures, your delights. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. True justice. No one gets away with anything. Stop worrying about people who die before they get... <laughs> the moment people die, they stand before the righteous judge of all the earth. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to some people in the Western world who grew up in a Christian... I've had people tell me, oh, but you grew up in a Christian environment. If you had not grown up in a Christian environment, you wouldn't be a Christian. And then I say, we better have a three-course lunch because there's so much wrong with that statement. I'm going to need lots of energy to actually help you out here. Okay? In the past, God overlooks our ignorance, but he has set a day and he has given proof to all men. What does all men mean? Some? <laughs> oh, man. Don't make it so easy. He has given proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Boom. 
He is grace. He overlooked for thousands of years. He overlooked such ignorance. But he doesn't do that anymore. But while we're alive and breathing, we have an opportunity to respond to the grace of God. And while we're alive as Christians, we have many opportunities to go deeper into the grace of God, to leave our worldly things behind, those standards, those mores, those approaches to life. Got to have the best toys, the biggest house, the fanciest, this, that, and the next thing. Leave that behind. And just obsess, fill your heart, your mind, your life with Jesus. Because he's the grace of God in skin. The word became flesh, took on human form, and lived among us. But we see here that there are different responses to the gospel. When they heard about this resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, some of them mocked. Who today believes in miracles and the resurrection? We are considered backward, dumb, primitive because we believe these crazy things. These are mostly arguments against Christianity, the Bible, the resurrection. Some sneered. That's one reaction. Remember, people mock what they don't understand. Don't be put off by mocking. They're just telling you, I don't have a cooking clue what you're talking about, and I'm a bit scared about it. So there's mocking. There's also curiosity. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. You know what they're saying? They're saying to me, they're saying what people say to me sometimes when I share the gospel. They say, you know, I, I can't fault what you're saying. I agree with you. You're saying, but I'm just not ready. I'm just not ready. And you were ready to become a parent? Really? It didn't stop you from becoming a parent. You were ready to get married? Only, only engaged people think they're ready to get married. Married people know better. <laughs> I wasn't ready for that. I do? I didn't read the fine print. Good grief. I said I do to all that. So there's curiosity, there's mocking, and there's acceptance. Some people accept the seed falls, as Jesus says in the parable, on good soil, and it takes root and it grows. A few men became followers. Notice that Paul left at that point. We've got to trust the Holy Spirit. You know? We can't make people Christians. We can't convince them. Yes, we can give them proof. We can give them good reasons. We can engage with them, and we must. But we can't save them. Paul left. He didn't leave Athens. He just left the Areopagus. They know where to find him. Where is he going to be tomorrow? In the marketplace, in the synagogue. A few believed. Among them, a member of the Areopagus. By the way, we know in the Sanhedrin that, that condemned Jesus to death, there were some who believed Nicodemus was there. And um, Josephus, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, the one who gave the tomb. They were in there. And when, so when the high priest says, none of us believe you, there were people there that did. 
also a woman named Damaris, Demaris, and a number of others. He didn't get his license to preach in Athens. He failed on that level, but he didn't fail in preaching the gospel. Now, I did tell you I was going to tell you a bit about Epicurean the Stoics, but I lied. We don't have time. So I'll have to do that again sometime. But let's end with this. Shining the light in the midst of spiritual load shedding. Man-made religion is just like groping in the dark. So close and yet so far. It can be right under your nose. Oh, yeah, I've been going to church. I've read the Bible. But has it changed your life? Has it changed my life? Only the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can turn the light on in our hearts so that we can see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And I like what Wiersbe says as we close. Take the gospel to your Athens. Where's, where's my Athens? Where's your Athens? Is it the workplace? Is it the sports field? Is it the boardroom? Is it the home? Is it the neighborhood? Classroom? Where is it? Take the gospel to your Athens. Let's pray. Oh, truly a word is like a double-edged sword. It divides bone and marrow of flesh, spirit. May we be pierced by your word today, Lord. You are the light of the world. Whoever walks in me shall never walk in darkness. God is light, in him there is no darkness. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from every sin. Called us to be light bearers, Lord. May we do that with gratitude and with love and with humility as we ourselves acknowledge that you are great. You're the greatest. You are good. You're the essence of goodness. 
and you've demonstrated your love to mankind on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are the governor, the ruler. There is no other. And you are all grace. Righteous, holy love and grace. Thank you, Lord, that in the past you've overlooked our sin because of Jesus, who pays it all. But you command all men and women, young people, boys and girls, everywhere, irrespective of race, color, religion, socioeconomic status, You command all people everywhere to repent. May we bow our hearts before you, Lord. May we be those living sacrifices, giving ourselves to the one who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Take your glory in our lives, Lord. Amen.